Today on episode number 316 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Maria Anderson joins me to discuss designing for the uncertain fall. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I welcome back to the show, once again, Maria Anderson. She's a Salt Lake City-based consultant who's spent 14 years teaching at the college level, 16 years writing curriculum, and six years developing digital products for learning, as you'll hear a little bit about on today's episode. She built iPad games to teach algebra, launched the Canvas Network MOOC platform, built adaptive learning platforms used by McGraw-Hill, and worked as a director of learning design for WGU, a fully online competency-based education institution. While a professor at Muskegon Community College in Michigan, she directed the week-long MCC Math and Technology Workshop for five years, helping faculty to prepare to teach online and improve their skills. Anderson is a software developer and a CEO of a startup, author, speaker, and a learning futurist. She holds degrees in math, chemistry, biology, business administration, and higher education leadership. Maria, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. So happy to be here. It is always so fun for me to have someone like you back because... First of all, you never left because we stay in touch and I love following your work. I have learned so much from you both on the podcast and on Twitter and your blog. You're such a great resource for you. Thanks for coming back. Oh, I'm I'm happy to be here. And I'm I'm glad that I, I hear about you proselytizing the ESA lens out there because I think it's one of those things that it's time has come. We're we're ready for it in education. Yes. Speaking of being ready for things. Tell us what your spring 2020, was it a term or a semester? What did it look like? Because I know you were teaching. Yeah, so I was teaching uh, math for elementary teachers this spring and the virus hit. And at that time, I had already been away for several conferences and my students are used to being taught remotely when I go to a conference. I just duck out of the conference, teach my class. I have all of my manipulative kits, my document camera and everything with me. I have a little portable kit for that. So for them, uh, nothing much changed. They, they can also come to class remotely if they can't make class. So we were already used to running Zoom sessions and doing things remotely, and all of their assignments are turned in digitally. So they actually said on our first meeting back, after we'd had a week of like the campus canceled class for a week to figure out what was going on. So we came back to class, and one of the first things that one of the students said to me was like, yeah, this was the only class we knew would be just the same as it was before we left. And it was. Yeah. I had a similar thing like that happened in the sense that my students were really used to a portion of their learning happened asynchronously online. They were accustomed to that. And instead of me being gone, like you going to a conference, they also had experienced some guest speakers. So we got to speak to a former student of mine who lives down in a more remote part near Senegal. 
And so for them, they were used to what is it like to connect with someone who is geographically so far away, but how much you could learn from them. So to me, when we went online, they were already, you know, prepped and ready to go and had that culture of curiosity and learning. And so it didn't feel like a big shift. I did think it was so funny. <laughs> One of them says, and I sound like I'm bragging, but they're like, this is so good could you please teach other people how to do this? Yeah. And I'm laughing so hard, like, oh, she doesn't know I have a podcast where I do attempt to do that. And it's also part of my job. But it was fun that they, you know, they had such a positive experience during such a stressful time in their lives. Yeah, well, you know, I think it comes back to good course design. And then just having been willing to embrace for a long time tools that enable students to, to succeed. So it's not so much that it's the technology that you have to embrace. I mean, it helps to embrace that. But I think for a lot of years, there have been faculty members who are like, I don't need to learn that new technology. I don't need to learn that new technology. It's not about the new technology. It's about finding new ways to let students participate if they have barriers in their life, right? If their car breaks down, if there's snow that day and it's not safe for them to drive, if somebody in their family's sick and they need to stay home, if they're sick and they need to stay home, right? Those were all things that kept students from succeeding. And as soon as you added, you know, a, a Zoom room to class so that those students could attend remotely on the days they needed to, you are enabling their success. And so it really wasn't ever that, well, I don't want to learn the technology part that was the problem. It was that I don't want to, I don't want to do this to help students. That was, I think, the problem or the lack of realization that that was why some of this technology was so important. Today's episode is all about designing for the unexpected. And yes. before we dive into your suggestions, I want to just start with the challenges. What kinds of challenges do you see emerging for us as educators to plan? Like, what, what are you seeing faculty struggling with? How do we plan for the unexpected? I think the hardest thing is that we are planning literally for the unexpected. Even after schools announce their plans for the fall, I think very few of us believe that these plans will actually happen the way they've been announced. And we are all creatures of habit in that, you know, like I typically know what I'm going to teach a year or more ahead of when I'm going to teach it. So like it's on my calendar at 8 a.m. Monday and Wednesday, you know, in 2022, you know, and people will, will try to schedule me for something. Oh, I'm busy then. How can you be busy in 2022? Because my calendar is actually scheduled for a class then, right? So we are used to always knowing exactly what's going to be happening. And we are suddenly being thrust into a position where even when we're told what's going to be happening, nobody believes it anymore. And so we're not just planning for being on campus in the fall or teaching online in the fall or teaching remotely in the fall or in some bizarre cases, teaching every other class with half the students in the fall while the rest of them remote in, which just sounds like the worst nightmare possible in terms of logistics for students and faculty. We actually don't know what's going to happen. And so I think that's the biggest challenge. I think that faculty are having a super hard time becoming motivated to, they know in their heart of hearts, they need to start right now getting ready for the fall. But this lack of knowledge for what is concretely going to happen is a barrier for a lot of people, I think. Like, well, until I know what's really going to happen, I'm not going to start. But that's really not the attitude to be taking right now because you really want to have your act together no matter what, what happens. And that really goes to good design 
and not necessarily rigid design. I mean, you want consistent design that's flexible for the situations that happen. But a lot of what we can do in course design can easily allow that flexibility. So there's a lot of tricks to getting good flexibility in the course, both for the students, the course itself, and even within the structures of the course. So let me give you an example. I teach a math class. It's a four credit class. And I have it broken down into like 22 topics that we teach. And it might seem like 22 topics. That's like way too granular, except that the fact that there's 22 topics gives me the flexibility to easily change from 15 weeks to 12 weeks to eight weeks to five weeks, like whatever format I get, I just have to stack up the topics a little differently for that, right? Whereas if I teach that class in five units, it becomes a lot harder to figure out how to divide five units into 12 weeks or eight weeks, right? It doesn't, it's not evenly, might fit nicely into a 15 week semester, but it doesn't fit nicely into these other formats, right? It also gives me the flexibility to move topics around holidays easily, right? So again, if you're, if you're working in big chunks, it's a little difficult to figure out how you flex them around holidays appropriately. You end up with tests in weird places or projects due like right after a holiday, right? Now I teach, you know, a lot of topics that are very objective. There's a lot of learning objectives, right? It's a lot of things we cover in, in STEM type classes. But again, I find that having the, the more granular unit size makes it a lot easier. And then within each of those topics, I try to be as consistent as possible. And so um, while I do have activities that span many topics, like a midterm or final or, you know, projects, within a topic, there's always a nicely repeating consistent unit. So it's, you know, there's some learning to do, there's an exploration activity, and there's, for me, there's a problem set to turn in, right? And that exploration activity and the learning part are where you can get a lot of flexibility. So like, exploration activity. It could be a discussion board. It could be a virtual session. It could be a video demo that students are going to do for me. It could be some kind of um, exploration of a topic of interest to the student, right? So exploration is just my 10-point activity of the week, right? Or of the topic, so to speak, where we can flex in and out of things that are, are important to that topic or to the students, to what's going on in the world. Last time you were here, I remember you gave an example of different ways of solving an equation or was a specific kind of equation? Yeah, quadratic equation. Yeah, Yeah, all the ways you can solve a quadratic equation. Can you give us a specific example of what those these three things look like in a given class? Because I think to hear a little bit more about I mean, I know you said the type of activity, but but yeah. So uh, for example, let's see. So this this topic we're doing right now is linear regression. So the learning part of that consists of some guided notes, which are kind of like an outline of a set of notes with problems to do, but the problems are not done for the student. And so each page of that has a little video they can watch to learn about, you know, the technique, to learn about how to do it with technology, with their Desmos calculator. And there are places where I say, you know, pause and try this problem. Some of them pause, some of them don't, but, you know, they know they know who they are and what they do, right? So that's the learning portion. Question on that. Is it something that they submit? Is there an accountability to actually turn in their Ah, guided notes? So I have flexibility there. Okay. So here's what happens. As long as you're getting above a 14 out of 20 on your problem sets, you decide what videos you need to watch. You decide what notes you need to take. Now you can use all those notes when you get to the exam. So if you don't take any notes, you just have nothing to, you, you don't have that resource. 
So the more notes you take, the more careful you are about trying the problems, the more resources you have when you get to the exam, right? So that's, that's a natural intrinsic incentive to like just help yourself. But it's really up to the student to decide what they know and don't know when they're doing the problem sets. And as long as they stay above a 14 out of 20, I don't interfere. But if they fall below a 14 out of 20, then they have to turn in the full set of guided notes for the next three topics. Mm, And then they restart. They get to do it on their own again, right? And so it's kind of like they're adults. They should be able to self-regulate, but sometimes we need to step in and be accountable. There's no extra points or anything like that when they have to turn in the notes, but I won't grade the assignment unless they turn it in with the notes attached. So that's how I do it, so that there's some flexibility, self-accountability, self-motivation, but yes, at some point I feel like that I have to step in and say, all right, let's try something else. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then so for, I love that you picked a topic. I actually know what it is. So for linear regression, how about the exploration part? What's something so you the might The exploration do? in this case is to, we have a discussion board. And for this one, they go to graphs in the world and find something that looks linear and uh, make a set of data to go with the graph. So, uh, you know, find the points that are on the graph. They share the graph and the data with in the discussion board, and then someone else will come along and um, actually do the linear regression on it, and then another person will come along and talk about the coefficients of determination and correlation and what that means based on what they saw. So questions on this. I'm so curious. If I'm your student, am I going to end up doing each of these three things you just mentioned within a discussion board, or do I want to get in there first and post that graphic so that someone else does it? There's like hundreds of graphs graphs in the world, right? Uh So they have no trouble finding a graph that kind of sings to them. And these are what I call structured discussions, which we often use in STEM in particular, because in STEM, you can't simply just post a problem and then have 30 people give you different versions of an answer all the answers look pretty much the same, right? So we tend to move towards structured discussions, which means I say like, your initial post is this, reply one on somebody's post will be this, and reply two on somebody's post will be this, right? And so um, you have the discussion, you engage with many topics by like looking through the, for the ones you want to respond to. So, you know, lurking on some topics as you figure out the ones you want to respond to, but then everybody has a very set role when they get to that um, discussion. And in fact, you know, when we're working on, in STEM workplaces and things like that, we often check each other's work. We you think about the software industry, you do QA and all the tickets. If you're working in a NASA control room and you're putting up the new Dragon rocket and somebody has to do a calculation, you're not going to rely on one person to do the calculation. You're going to rely on like several people to check it and make sure that it's okay, right? And so just trying to create that kind of collaboration space uh, for students. So that's the exploration activity for regression, for example. And I want, I'm sorry if I'm going to take you on too much of a tangent, but because you just mentioned it, could you discuss a little bit about how this particular example you just gave supports greater equity in your classes? Yeah, so I really want students to be able to explore things that are of interest to them, right? And I think that um, often in STEM, we get into this really kind of lockstep with the curriculum where there's not a lot of flexibility to explore topics. So I do try where we can to let them bring in some of their own interests. I also, you know, will try at the beginning of the term, my introduction board is always around like, what are you planning to eventually do? And do you see yourself using math and this in any way? Turns out my students are semester all biology majors. 
a weird summer term where I have only biology majors or, or neuroscience. So we're going to do a lot of biology problems in the problem sets because my problem sets pull from a lot of real world graphs, and real world data. And so I'll just go find all the biology ones that we've got and we'll do those, you know, for our problem sets. Uh, I couldn't do that for the first two because those were already scheduled when I got the new students, but I can do it from this point on. I can make sure we are always looking at some of the epidemiology of COVID or, you know, other genetics issues, you know, anything I can find graphs for, we can go through. I also wanted to point out, so not only is your approaches that you're recommending helping us have greater equity, they're also helping us have a greater likelihood of academic integrity. So by the fact that I'm using, you're asking me to go find a chart that I like on graphs of the world. Graphs of the world is not a static website. So I, you know, I don't know if you put any sort of limits that has to be within the last month or whatever it is, but since you said there's hundreds and hundreds there. No, if they end up looking through 200 graphs to find the one they want, have I lost? No, no, (laughs) no. (laughs) And you know, there's a ton more we could talk about around issues of, of, you know, ways we assess in STEM and equity around that. And, you know, we can do a whole podcast episode on that. I've been doing a lot of talks around academic integrity in STEM fields, in particular for online work. Well, and I'm so excited because not only could we, ladies and gentlemen, we actually are. We actually have uh, already uh, bookmarked uh, uh, that idea because I want to have you back and and hear even more about that because I know you do have so much to share. But I'll bring us back to we had three things. We had our learning, we had our exploration, and then what's the last piece of your structure? Yeah, so the last piece of that topic structure is a problem set. And so this is a math class, and I want to be able to look at their, I want to see their student voice come out, right? And so this is something we talk about in the non-science and math subjects that you know that it's the student because you've seen their student voice in their drafts over and over, right? And so you can tell that it's the student because of that. It's difficult to do in STEM, especially if what you're doing is doing just like online homework where they just click, you know, A, B, C, or D or fill in a blank. And so I prefer to do um, problem sets where they are able to write out their solutions, discuss the ideas, uh, really surface the work themselves instead of having to just choose it on a screen. And I try to keep the problem sets to just a few problems. So for me, like a topic is maybe about four to six problems on a problem set, but they go in deeply. And the goal is to do them perfectly like to do them very, very well. They have the videos to support their learning. They can ask questions if they have them. And so what I want to see is not like a half-baked effort. I want to see their best effort, right? So their best effort at completing the work as if they were in the workplace, right? So a lot of the questions are really oriented around data sets from the real world, graphs from the real world, situations from the real world. They're not they're very rarely just, you know, like a, an algebra problem. There are a topic or two that kind of land that way. But for the most part, they're all around, you know, actually analyzing real world situations. I think so often about curiosity and learning and all the ways that we just squelch it. And something like this, where you can really get people thinking, I'm, I'm thinking way back to one of the early episodes with Doug McKee, who teaches in economics. And I'm I'm sort of embarrassed to say, but I guess it's my prior professors that should be embarrassed. I just never had that experience as a student to be like, you know, what do you care about? And maybe I wouldn't even know that I cared about it until I even knew that a data set that was real, that a credible institution has, you know, available for us to go. And I've got a colleague who's doing that a lot with data sets for voting. And and, um, I mean, 
what an opportunity. Fair, I mean, we didn't have the data like we have today. Yeah. When we, when you and I went to school. I mean, we didn't have, we were just starting to get things like Google and nobody was putting out this much data because nobody had this much data. It's only like the last 10 or 20 years where, where businesses have started to collect this much data and just publicly make it available uh, in easy to access formats. So I, I think, you know, graphs in the world is something that would have been really difficult to do even 10 years ago. But, you know, all of the trends and, you know, how much data we create every day in the world are just, you know, exponential. I'm hoping we can talk about two more challenges before we get over to the recommendations. The first one I shared with you that I'm seeing a lot of people have is that they're hearing that they need to go back and revisit their learning outcomes. And it's kind of like what I was hearing would be, okay, so now we're in the middle of this pandemic, we've shifted online. So I'm going to revisit. But my concern is that when we actually go and revisit, we're sort of assuming what was there was effective in the first place. So could you talk a little bit about your advice? How do we revisit (laughs) with new eyes, but not just COVID eyes, bigger eyes than COVID are learning outcomes for a course? Yeah, so I am happy to talk about this subject. (laughs) As you know, I am. I think the first thing you have to do is take a look at whatever the course learning objectives are, the competencies of the course, whatever your institution calls them. Those should be the five to seven skills that students should leave your course with. I mean, we're, if we're talking like three to four credit class. And before you even look at what those are, you should probably just take out a sheet of paper and see if you can write down what you think the five to seven skills that a student should have when they leave your course are. I'm not talking about topics. I'm talking about skills. So a skill is like to be able to apply the scientific method. That's a skill. A topic is genetics, right? So you think about that realistically, it just kind of depends on the class, how many you actually land on. But once you think you know what those skills are, then go look at your course objectives and see if there's any relation between what you think students should be leaving the course with and what those course objectives say. You may not be able to do anything immediately about your course objectives because those usually go through approval processes. But if you realize there's a disconnect right there, start that process. Say like, I, I would like to discuss these this fall. I think these need a revamp, right? And so what you can do when you're stuck in that position is you've got the ones that your department advocates for. And if you notice that you have skills that aren't there, you can kind of just add them as like, you know, these are department goals. These are my goals, right? So that you may, you maybe end up with a few more than normal. And then as you go through the learning objectives for the course, and you really, really want to have learning objectives for the course. And these are the granular objectives, like we talked about in a previous episode, like solve a quadratic equation using a quadratic formula. That's a granular, very specific learning objective that's going to be taught. Well, going into all of this uncertainty, you must know what it is you really want to be teaching, like for sure. And you're going to forget as things get crazy, just this fall, you're going to forget where you put things unless you are labeling all of your activities with your learning objectives. So when I make a video, I put the learning objectives up covered on the video in the description. When I make a problem on a problem set, I put the learning objectives that go with that section of problems or that problem on the problem set. Right. When I do a discussion board, I mark down what learning objective I'm planning to have them you know, learn, cover on that discussion board. And so one of the things you're hoping to do as you look at your learning objectives, you need to put them up against those course objectives and say, does this learning objective actually correspond to the course objective anywhere? And if the answer is no, ask yourself that serious question like, does this learning objective need to be here? Right, Because most of our classes already have way too much to teach in them. 
And we need to make careful choices right now. Everybody's a little bit stressed. Everybody's a little bit anxious. These courses were already bloated to begin with, and we need to make smarter decisions. Better to go deep than to go wide, right? And so after you're sure your learning objectives actually match your course objectives, which is like, you know, an interesting exercise all by itself. And it's one of the reasons that we have this two-layer view in Course Tune is that, you know, one layer is for looking at it as you teach it, and the other layer is looking at every learning objective and whether it meets a course objective. And um, that's one of the reasons we did that, was to just draw your attention to, like, wait a second, why is this here? But then after I do that, I, I actually relook at the learning objectives using that ESOL lens and ask myself the question of, how deeply do students actually have to be able to perform on this? Do they need to be able to do it with assistance, supported, with help? Do they need to be able to do it independently to the next class? Do they need to be able to do it for a lifetime? Right? Or do I just need to mention that this exists and move on with life, right? And getting a handle on that level of depth of assessment that you're going to have really starts to speak to a lot of equity issues, I think. Because at least in, in STEM fields, it does. And I'm, I'm sure you can, you can speak to it in other places as well, since you've talked to so many people. We tend to like have a favorite assessment, and then that's all we do. Like So in STEM fields, it tends to be tests. We give tests on everything. Well, if you didn't grow up in a household where somebody could help you learn how to become good at tests, where you never had test prep, where you never quite figured out how to you know read a textbook to the depth at which you could answer really technical multiple choice questions, then you're never going to do well in these classes. On the other hand, if you have a variety of assessments, because you've looked at your learning objectives and you recognize that they need to be assessed at a variety of levels, you know, if you have some assessments where they do a video demonstration, some assessments where they write, some assessments where they do an oral part, an oral exam, right? When you do that, you're, you are asking students to demonstrate what they know instead of just taking your one assessment that's a hammer and like looking at all the world like it's a nail, right? And I think that's where we really start to get at making sure that students can persist in our, our STEM courses, making sure that you feel like you can demonstrate a lot of your abilities instead of demonstrating the gaps in your abilities, right? And so I think careful design is actually what gets us there. It's knowing what we're really teaching and then very carefully deciding the level of assessment we're going to do, what learning objectives that covers, all of that. It's super important work, and it seems like it'd be extra work right now, but you are not going to survive the fall if you don't know what you're doing. And you're really not going to survive next year if you can't remember what you did in the fall. Because like to build an online class or a class that can flex in and out of anything that we get thrown at us, you need to know the structure of that course and you need to be able to go back to it next year. If you can't remember what you put in your videos next year, that's going to be a lot of time wasted. And if you don't know, you know what needs to go on which assessments, that's going to be a lot of time wasted. So having the plan up front, having the blueprint up front is going to be a godsend when you get to that, like suddenly moving the course into whatever new format it happens to be this fall. I want to point back to what you said earlier, and it's definitely going to be a takeaway for me from this conversation 
is this idea of having a space for the exploration. Because if you don't have a space for exploration, then it is going to be harder for you to intentionally design in those opportunities to bring in things that are most relevant to students, as well as to be bringing in timely events, which you know students really, really love when we do that. They, they treasure those opportunities to be seeing what's happening today and you know how it relates to what they're learning. I did also just want to mention, I'm going to put a couple links. You've mentioned the ESO lens a couple of times, but for anyone not familiar with it, that's a must listen prior episode when Maria has been here. I'll link to that in the show notes. And I'll also be linking over to an episode with one of the faculty from the California State University series that I did. And his name is Jun Wang. And he teaches math as well. And he gave such a beautiful illustration that I wish I could replicate at this moment. But he was really talking about the way that those cultures with a more individualistic culture would answer a mathematical equation. And then an example of how a more collectivist culture would answer. And it's such a beautiful story. And and not one because I didn't grow up in a very uh, collectivist culture, not one that I could really understand until he said it. And then I thought, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Their mathematical thinking was sound. They just had a different cultural way of understanding that the question was being asked. So that is definitely one worth going back and listening to, if nothing else for that story is just such a great example. And, and I don't want to go too much on this because I know I still have one more thing to ask you before we do the recommendations. This always happens to us, Maria. But thinking about these um, standardized tests and how so many institutions now have done away with them either entirely, or at least I'm seeing for the next year or two. So I, I mean, all these themes kind of go together when we start looking at issues of equity. But I did want to ask you about the last challenge that I know you have a little bit more to share with us about your tool that that so many of us can access. So let's look a little bit about, and, and it, it actually ties back to what we were just talking about, but leaving room for what's emerging in the moment. Cause that's kind of the often challenge people have. If we overstructure our classes, then we're leaving our students out of the things that they're really curious about that are most relevant to them. Yeah. So I think that's why you have to have whatever your recurring structures are, you have to have uh, space for those other things too. So like for me, it's explorations in the topics, right? You can have activities that arc across several topics, right? So, you know, projects, papers, presentations, things that the students will do on top of the repeating structure of what they're going to be learning and, and being assessed on. And of course, like I, I've found my own ways of making sure we always have relevant content, right? So for me, that's that's using graphs in the world and, you know, looking at all of the wonderful ways we can quantify the world and learn about the world by just looking at a graph every day. I can't tell you the number of things I know now that I didn't know two years ago because I simply found a graph on it. And and our, our brains are wired to like remember pictures. So it's really easy to remember the information. But I think you have to think about where in your course you can do that. Like what it, so for me that happens in every problem set, right? I can bring in new content, fresh content, anything that's going on in the world into the problem sets. I can bring it into the explorations, the videos. I'm like a little nervous because I recorded all the videos last fall and I'm, it was like way before the world changed, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm sure there's some stuff in those videos that isn't going to age very well, like, you know, predict what the retail sales for, I'm trying to think of some company that's recently gone out of business, you know, yeah. Yeah. it's going to be in 2023, like, and like, oh, that business doesn't exist anymore. You know? <laughs> but 
anyways, we, we do our best. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Course Tune and how we can make use of it in our teaching. Well, so my company, Course Tune, we just put out a brand new product called Course Plan. And it's really our first single user license uh, experience. And it's designed really for professors and teachers who want to do this careful design for their classes. You can go in and, and build up to eight classes with a license. And you can do the alignment of learning objectives to the level of organization, like the topics, for example. You can do the alignment to the course objectives. You can add your ESOL scale to that. You can add Bloom's taxonomy if you'd like. And then once you have that structure, you can build the activities, the learning and assessment activities, the design for them, not the actual activities that go on those learning objectives. So you can say like, okay, I'm going to have a discussion that covers these two learning objectives. And I'm going to have a project that covers these 10 objectives. And you can actually visually see the entire structure of the course being built, kind of like the blueprint for a house. And so you can see like, do I have enough learning? Do I have enough assessment? It helps to keep you from over assessing or assessing in the wrong way because you can suddenly see that nuance of variety on things and generate all sorts of interesting kind of correlation reports, design reports uh, for, for those courses. So that when you go into building in the LMS or redesigning for the fall, you have a really good idea of what's there in your course and can and always have a place you can go back to grab what the learning objectives actually are. Like if you want to write an assessment, you know, tomorrow for exam two, you can just go grab, just, you know, click a button, say, give me all the learning objectives for exam two. You've got them, right? So we've really been working hard to try to make sure that we can give instructors the tools they might need right now. I've never seen so many instructors start actually caring about course design. I'm not sure if it's a panic care or a I'm caring for my course care, but either way, we'll take it. I'm glad that people are paying more attention to course design and we're hoping to to bring a lot of people into this new view of your course. So much of the literature around change starts with creating a sense of urgency and we don't really have to create one these days. <laughs> it's just right there. I do think that higher ed has moved a decade forward in time in just a couple of weeks. And that is really something to behold. The time it would have taken for this many instructors to learn to put their classes into online formats, remote meetings, like all of that stuff. I, I'm guessing it would have taken us a decade of very hard work. Yeah, my concern is over the summer, I work at a more traditional institution where a lot of our faculty are on nine-month contracts. So then the concern, of course, is then can that sense of urge, our, our bodies and our minds can't really hang on to like the house is burning down for that long, you know, so it's, will there be enough momentum to keep making that kind of transformative change? So well, I hope so. And I, I think that what you just said actually brings up a point that we should all think about. We have a lot of students who are always in the house is burning down anxiety phase, yes. right? They are always living paycheck to paycheck. They are always a hundred dollars away from a crisis. They are always in danger of having to drop out of their classes because of other things going on in their lives. If we are experiencing this and thinking like, oh my gosh, I can't do this for like the four months of summer too. Well, guess what? Plenty of our students are doing this all the time. And you need to think about that when you set deadlines that are really harsh and when you aren't forgiving of circumstances students are in, right? That you know how you felt during this time. Just imagine feeling that all the time. That is so essential for us. Any opportunity that we can have to feel greater empathy for our students and to try, we'll never get there, but to try to understand, you know, the circumstances that they're living in. And yeah, absolutely. 
Before Maria and I get to the recommendations segment, I want to spend a little time to thank today's sponsor and also to recommend it to you. It's such an essential part of my own productivity system, and it's called Text Expander. They are the longest running sponsor of teaching in higher ed. So if you've listened for a while, you've heard me talk about the ways in which it helps me be more productive. What it does is it's a app that's really, really easy to use, and it's on a number of platforms. You can use it on a Mac, on iOS, and on Windows. And it uses what are called snippets that are really easy things that you can enter in. Think of them as abbreviations. And you press your space bar, and all of a sudden, out comes text that you've pre-programmed in there. It can be something as simple as a web link that you want to be able to easily send people to. We've got all kinds of professional development going on over the summer, so I want to be able to easily direct people to the websites where they can get more information and register for those programs. And I don't want to have to every single time go looking for that link every time I want to share it with someone. And you can find out a lot more about creative ways to use Text Expander. Oh gosh, I've had people brainstorm on the Teaching in Higher Ed Slack channel about using it for letters of recommendation, about remembering things like phone numbers. I've talked about that before. And I recently did get a new computer. And as I've been telling you for many years now, it was one of the first things I was going to say that I installed, but my husband listens to every episode and he's going to know he's actually the one that installed Text Expander on the new computer. As, as So as promised, it was uh, definitely so essential. It was one, among the first apps that got put on that new computer. And we want to thank them for sponsoring. And if you head on over to Text Expander dot com slash podcast you'll get 20 percent off your first year and it'll save you a bunch of time and sometimes people worry about that being like focusing too much on efficiency what that frees us up to do just like we talk about at the start of every episode is to be more present more present for our students more present for the others in our life so have a look at it and in a little bit when we get to the recommendations spoiler alert text expander is going to come up yet again Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations and mine are related to each other. I have to confess that when I've had Mike Caulfield, who is a misinformation expert, when he's been on the show in the past, I have tended to feel so intimidated by equipping myself to be able to do this. And especially because he used to really stress the importance of domain specific knowledge in order to counter misinformation. And now now a lot of his materials have kind of moved a little bit away from that. And he's got the SIFT model, which we have talked about many times on the show. Most recently, I recommended his SIFT model specific to the coronavirus. But today I want to just recall our attention to the SIFT model in general. Those are four steps that we can take for really fighting against a lot of different kinds of misinformation. And what he's stressing so much now is just do it, like make it so that it's just rote for yourself. You just go through these four steps. They are not hard. And yet I still found myself just holding back from it. And so a relative of mine sent me over, uh, it was a Facebook message thing that was like, oh, here's the origins of the song. Uh, Blackbird. And I love that song. In fact, I've recommended a version of that song before in the podcast. So if you've been listening for a while, you know, I've been a fan. But it was one of those things where I was like, hmm, 
this sounds a little too neat and tidy. So I went through the four steps and found out that indeed the story is a little bit more complex than this little quick Facebook story would seem to indicate. And I felt so like, ah, my confidence building. And when we look at all of the racial unrest that is happening around the world, and we couple that with a pandemic, and we couple that with in the states, we have a very important election coming in November 2020. We've got to get it together. We, including me, I'm pointing the finger right at myself. Maria can see me pointing my fingers. It is no longer that we can just say, that's not my thing. I'm not good at that. I, you know, I can't do that. We all can do this. So I'm going to post to a MIT Technology Review article about protest misinformation is riding on the success of pandemic hoaxes. Uh, we've got to be able to suss out misinformation and find the information that we need to be good citizens and to make this world a better place and saying that white supremacy has no place in it and that black lives matter and that we need to be doing better for our students of color. So I just, I want to, I really want to challenge myself. I don't get to feel all insecure. Oh, how convenient for me that I get to do that. No, the steps are right there. You can go through his course. It's a three hour course if you were to go through it all at once, but of course you can take it as you need it. And then take these opportunities, whether it's Blackbird or whether it's something about the protests or anything in between, and just get it to be a regular part of your routine so you don't even have to think about it. And you can be a part of helping us be a more informed society. And I am now going to pass it over to Maria. And I already know that I already know what she's recommending. And you're going to hear an echo. But it's a coincidence that she just happens to be recommending something that also happens to be a sponsor of today's episode. Well, it's funny because I'm going to tie it into what you just said, too. So I am a big fan of Text Expander. I use it all the time for assessment so that I can bring uh, consistent feedback to students. And I recently realized that I could use it to make responses to people that I'm arguing with on the internet. And not necessarily to argue. I've been trying to like craft responses that aren't very, that don't attack and just seek to inform, mm-hmm. right? And leave, try to leave an opening there for people to change their minds. But it gets exhausting to do these over and over and over, right? So I've been using Text Expander to make little lists of like, you know, okay, what do we actually know about coronavirus? Or what do we actually know about protests? Or what do we actually know about pr- police brutality? You know, like, and so then when I hit somebody who's got one of these kind of uh, really inflammatory, half-baked responses to something, I can just go to my text expander, pop in the right response, you know, with facts and move on. That way I can keep, you know, refining my statements and things to, to be better and better. And so that's just my newest use of text expander, but I love it. And if you don't use it, you should probably go find it. Maria, thank you so much for coming back on Teaching in Higher Ed. You know I always love any time I get to talk to you. And I also am so excited that you'll be coming back to talk specifically about assessment within STEM. But to me, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bleed over to a lot more than just STEM. I already know it. I'm sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Usually I record the introduction and the conclusion on the very day that I interview the person so that it all goes seamlessly, but I'm recording this a few days after talking with Marie Anderson, and I'm still thinking about all the ideas she shared. She's given me so much to think about for my fall classes, and I'm just excited to put some of those things into practice and would love to hear from you what your takeaways are. I'm over at Twitter at B-O-N-N-I-2-0-8 
Well, there's also information about other ways to contact me on the Teaching in Higher Ed website. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks once again to Text Expander for being such a long-time supporter and sponsor of Teaching in Higher Ed. See you next time.